Yep, so there he is, that guy's still walking in the desert. He's still waiting for part two. Um, and he must be pretty thirsty by now. Um, well, Happy New Year! I'm never sure when it's quite time in the year to stop saying Happy New Year, um, but we're only halfway through January, so I think it's okay. Um, lots of references to 2024, um, and I had one as well, and just thought, yeah, it's going to be a good one. It's going to be a good one. He's going to stand on the faith that it's going to be a good one. Um, I like maths. I like the significance of numbers. Um, God likes maths as well. Uh, any scientists out there will, will understand that. Um, and the, the number 24 I thought of was the 24 elders in Revelation around the throne. Uh, something to think about. Who started journaling at the back of David's message? Has anybody started that? Uh, I have. Um, who started evangelizing? He's given out some of those leaflets. Mark has. And off the back of my own message, who started reading their Bible in a new year? I was looking for some funny things about found a great page full of them. Um, now you like this one, Johan, because it sounds good. Did you know, crazy fact, did you know there are more atoms in a molecule of water than there are stars in our solar system? How many atoms are there in a molecule of water? Three. In one molecule of water, how many stars in our solar system? One. Did you know that most people have more than the average number of arms and legs? And you ever see the geese when they're flying south or flying back and they're flying like a V? And have you ever noticed that one side of the V is longer than the other. Do you know why that is? More geese on that side. So, before we kick off properly, um, there's something I wanted to share, which isn't really part of the sermon, and it's probably the sort of thing I'd have shouted from the front during the worship. Um, but I've been reading through Chronicles, and in 2 Chronicles 5, says, the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not, could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. This year, let's not be put out when God's glory gets in the way. If God breaks up our routine, the way that we normally do things. Let's be prepared for that. Let God shake things up. Let God do a new thing, like Alex said. You know, Alex messaged me before and said, uh, said I'm leading the worship, if those of you want to be sung or to be said or whatever, I said, you know what, Alex, just be led by God. Let's leave it in his hands. And Alex has now left me scribbling notes while she was saying things. There and that's there because it's all 
together, being joined up. Um, so yeah, let God do that meeting. And let's not be stuck in our way, stuck in our traditions, and stuck in our ruts. I also want to thank Wendy for your words this morning. Uh, again, very timely. I hope you don't mind me saying, Wendy had a word for me. She said, you are enough. And I needed to hear that, okay? And I've been hearing from God over the last couple of weeks that he is enough. And as Wendy said, at the end of the day, it's only you left. But genuinely, thank you for the encouragement after the last message that I gave. Uh, it makes you feel good when someone says that was great. Um, but it's God's word, it's not mine. Um, and now I guess, you know, this is the difficult second day. I kind of wish I was bringing you some new material, um, but basically this one is the stuff that didn't make the cut of the last one. Um, it was all a bit of a panel yesterday when I was preparing this message. Um, students, students, concerned. Um, we'll check the kitchen clock. It was 1.45. We had to go out at 5.30. I gave you the best part of four hours to together all the kind of musings and thoughts that I've had over the week running up to this. I came up to get some notes, something from the journal, from the Potter School. Oh, it's still 1.45pm. Could this be the Lord holding the sun in the sky like he did to Joshua? Maybe he's turning back the sundial like he did for Hezekiah. No, the clock was stopped. It was actually 3.35. Um, I had two hours to prepare my message. Um, so yeah, the devil's a pain in the ass. Um, um, he stripped me of my time to do this. It's a collection of musings and thoughts. And I warn you now, it might be a little bit rigorous, but I will trust in God to guide me through this. I've had this thought all this week. Of looking down at these notes and thinking, or not being able to read it. With that said, who's ready for some more? Excellent. Does anyone remember what we covered last time? Part one. Um, yeah, we covered three. We dug into this verse um, where Jesus is saying, If you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And we started with that last bit of text in blue, but then we went back and we looked at the steps involved in getting to that truth. Because we all want to be free, right? We want to be free in that scriptural biblical, spiritual sense of freedom. Um, we compared a couple of those. We compared the step of believing with the step of knowing the truth. Because it's interesting that those are called out as being different. But belief is the starting point. But knowing the truth, that's the target. That's the goal. Because that how we are truly set free. 
And this was really the nub, the crux of what I wanted to talk about and what we were hoping that explained. Is this abiding in his word? So we've got some different words here that mean abide. The word remain. The word stay. The word abiding. They're all the same word in the Greek that's written in the Bible. So I want you to read the written word. I want you to study it. I want you to abide it, live in it, continue in it, and be obedient to it. Because when you abide in him and in his word, that is when you are a disciple. Your discipleship starts with that abiding. We looked at this fantastic visualisation of the Bible's methods. Like I said, I'm a bit of a science nerd, I'm a bit of a math nerd. For those who didn't see it, this piece of art which shows the books along the bottom of the Bible, uh, the books of the Bible along the bottom of the chart, with the length of the lines hanging down, showing how long those books are. And the kind of rainbow pattern is the cross-references between parts of the Bible. 63,000 of them. See, I think there's majesty just in that, of this woven tapestry that is there for us to weave ourselves into. Has anybody seen the film The Matrix? I love that film. It's not a Christian film, by the way, if you haven't seen it. Um, it's a good film. And it actually draws a really good parallel around the world that we are shown and see and the reality. Um, but there's a great bit in that film. There's a guy who stares at a computer screen and all he sees is these machine numbers coming back. But he can see what's in the Matrix. We can see this rich picture of reality because it's just text on the screen. And the Bible's like that. When you learn to read, when you learn to abide in it, there is this truth, there is this glory that comes out of it that is more than just written words on a page. And there is one person who is woven from the beginning of that book to the end. And that person is man. It's a bit like a where's Willie, but it's where's Jesus? Or there's Jesus. Because to the layman, the story of Jesus starts in the gospel, starts in the New Testament. But we know that the story of Jesus begins right at the beginning. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the Word. And those two unifying bits of Scripture show that Jesus is woven throughout. Now there's debate on this. People have different views, but I would ask you, who was walking in the Garden of Eden? Who was that human spirit walking in the Garden of Eden? Who was the person who told Joshua to take off his shoes because the ground he was on was finished? Who met with Hagar and reassured her in the wilderness? Who met with Abraham and saw the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Who 
Jesus is waiting to act. So this is where we left off last time. I put forward four statements. The challenges. Now we'll dig into those. God works in mysterious ways. Is it true? Yeah, it is. It's some pretty mysterious stuff. Some stuff is just equally mysterious. But it's just worked in mysterious ways. Is it scripture? Well, that particular line that people like to throw around is in Scripture. Now, it may be true that God does sometimes work in mysterious ways, but we tend to lean on other people's writings rather than on the Bible. God won't give you more than you can handle. Now, that was an interesting one. Because when when I read that out last time, there were a few notes on that. God, 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 God will never give you more than you can. And I think where people draw that from is in Corinthians, which states, And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, and that he gives you a way out. So that's slightly different. That verse is very much about temptation. Because God frequently allows us to be faced with things that we cannot handle. How often do we find that we have to lean on Christ, we have to lean on each other, we have to lean on people of the community that we have in this church for those things that we can't handle. But we are not isolated individual people that are capable of doing all things. We do all things through God. But God regularly does give us things that we can't handle. And Gideon had his army stripped down to what? 300 people. So that God's glory could be shown. I like this one. I told you it was going to be math today. Any mathematicians want to translate that? Correct. Money is money is the root of the sum of evil. So money is the root of all evil. Ah, thank you. So money is the root of all evil. That is one of the most commonly misquoted pieces of scripture. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The Bible refers to mammon, which is this sort of being consumed by the desire for money and also worship of money. But money in itself isn't the root of all evil. Otherwise, we wouldn't take it to auction. Which we haven't done today. So, whoever is in charge of that today needs to brush up on the scripture. And this one, I like this one. This is from Shakespeare. It's from Hamlet. Um, where Polonius gives a speech to his son Laertes as he goes off into the world. And this quote and that whole passage is particularly special to me because it's something my dad read to me when I left home for the first time at 18 to go 
and disengage this fellow that has done it. And it doesn't mean it's not useful or valuable or helpful, but it's not scripture. And we have to lean on scripture for our truth. I mean, it sounds scripture, doesn't it? It sounds sort of original King James, it's these and thou's and thine's. But what's my point in all of this, apart from it being a Bible point? My point here is that it is easy to misquote or misattribute scripture. We can do it volitionally, we can do it accidentally, we can even do it deliberately. But God is pretty clear about the importance of accuracy and the way in which we treat his word. Do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it. Keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. See that you do all I command you. Do not add to it, or take away from it. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person all the plagues described in the scroll. And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city God described in this world. Now that last one is specifically about John's revelation in the island of um, Patmos. But coupled with what Moses wrote, I think we can agree, I think we can be comfortable that God did not give him his, his written word for us to munge it into whatever suits our worldview or how we feel or what someone else told us it means. Whether you know the word munch, it's one of my favourite words. It's a bit like a, ner- a nerdy IT word, M-U-N-G. And it's a recursive acronym. So munch stands for munch until made. But we've got to be careful that we don't munge scripture. And that we don't dilute it, we don't water it down, we don't take the cold water and make it lukewarm, or let the warm water become lukewarm. Who likes being wrong? Who likes finding out that they're wrong? Yeah, I do. I do. Jude has a little dance that she does when, when she's right and I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. Which one? Oh, I, I, yeah. the one I got this Christmas. Oh, I've got one that says I might be wrong, but it's highly unlikely. I don't wear it as often because I notice there's a spelling mistake and a grammatical error in the text that people want to appreciate. So the word like has been spelled wrong and uh, there's, an, there's an apostrophe in the there shouldn't be. Um, so I don't know whether that's meant to be ironic or just embarrassing. Um, no, I thought, I thought Jude was talking about a different piece that I got this year, which is like an outline of England, well, of, of the British Isles, Great Britain. And... Uh, then they highlighted the bit of the UK, which is Yorkshire. And in, in that bit, it's 
and the rest of it goes wrong. Um, I have another one as well, which I wear at work sometimes, which says, I can explain it to you, but I can't understand it. Impossibility relevant is not for this. So who likes finding out they're wrong? Well, I do. Because when you find out you're wrong, you're another step closer to the truth. If anybody here thinks they're right about everything, I do. We've all got things wrong. We've all misunderstood things. We've all inherited perspectives, opinions that are just not correct. Um, again, going back to what Alex mentioned earlier, that you know, we're on this journey. We are being received, refined. We're being knocked into shape by God. And that includes finding out that we're wrong. But we're on this journey to becoming faithful. The only sinless person to walk the face of this earth. And if we are to be Christ-like, then we need correction. Because it's better to be wrong and to find out than to be wrong and just think that you're right. Something that I read as well, I thought I was reading from Chronicles. In Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles 17, David says he wants to build a temple. And Nathan says, Yeah, go build a temple. It's in your heart, God's with you. Go and build a temple. But then God corrects Nathan. So Nathan's guilty wasn't correct. He had to be corrected. Now, imagine being Nathan having to go back. The king. Not this abstract character in the Bible, but the king. And say, Look, I know I told you about that temple. I know I said it'd be all okay, but it's not true. That's going to be quite hard. And I think, you know, sometimes we need to have that courage to acknowledge when we're wrong. I heard a story once. And I don't know if it's true. And it doesn't really matter. There's a story about a guy who was brought in to review a factory and the way in which they were working to see if they could do improvements and things like that. And he said, had a meeting with the director and said, Look, I've noticed having spoken to the staff that when you do deliveries all throughout the week, but on one case, the delivery drivers don't go out in the van. They, they, they help in the factory and they sweep up and they tidy up and they do their work around the factory. Surely it would be better if you're delivering all throughout the week, you know? And why don't you still it now? Just, just how it's always been. You've always, you know, the drivers have never driven out on a Wednesday. And after much digging, it turned out the factory has been around for quite a long time and before vans, these new horses, the carts, deliver things. And the horses had to rest on a Wednesday. So because the horses were resting on a Wednesday, the people that did the deliveries had nothing to do, so they did all the job for the factory. But the problem is that just became ingrained in the culture. And that was something that was just of its time. But quite often we have tradition. We have things that we've always done a certain way, we have things that we were told, we have things that we assume that just
just become part of our makeup. And sometimes we need those shifting lights. Sometimes we just need to go back and understand the origins of that. Because we shouldn't be doing things just for the sake of doing them, but we should be doing them because we understand why they glorify God, why they bring faith to Him, and why they are valuable in the scripture. Because you see, quite often the traditions we have it do have fellowships, but they get lost. They get munged. They get munged until we don't understand them and just do them. And when we're asked to explain them to people, why do you do that at church? Quite often we don't know. Now this is going to show the timing of this, but it was intended to be before Christmas and we're now post-Christmas. But here's a post-festive thing. How many kings visited Jesus in the sky? Well, there were no kings. There were some magi. But we don't know how many. Was it even a stable? We don't know. And did they even visit him immediately after his birth? Or was it two years later? In a house. So what should we do? Should we throw out all this tradition? Not in the Bible, so we don't do that. Should we become legalistic? Well, I quite like our Christmas tree. And although there is no reference to Christmas trees in the Bible, I will continue, I will continue to put Jesus in the Bible. That's only because I'm not allowed. And I like singing We Three Kings. Although I will be honest, I prefer the Beatles. Anyone know the Beatles version? Does anybody want to join in? We four Beatles of, all, of Liverpool are John in a taxi, Paul in a car, George on a scooter, beating his hooter, following me. But whilst it's okay to have tradition, you know, life is supposed to be joyful. We do need to be able to make that discernment between scriptural truth and human embellishment. I had a great word in Maynard um, the other day, something that the Lord gave him um, and fit very well with it. It's just two words. Stay teachable. And that really rang home with me with the rest of this message. And he gave me three verses that are drawn into that. Proverbs 22, 19. So that your trust may be in the Lord, I teach you today, even you. Psalm 27, 11. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my trust. Psalm 34, 11. Come, my children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Don't think that you know it all. Do you think everything that you do know is correct? Are you happy?
delighted to be corrected. Can you be refined? Can your understanding be deepened? Do you enjoy correction? Again, something Alice said earlier in Philippians about pressing on. We are on a journey. We have not arrived. As I mentioned in the first half of this, we are in the wilderness now. We are out of Egypt, but we are in the wilderness on a journey, and we have to finish that journey strong. And that journey is being refined, being achieved, being made more personal. 2 Timothy tells us that all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. There is not a verse in this book that has no application to your life. Every piece of scripture is valuable. Even all the begats and the begats and the begats and the begats, they are all valuable. Even the endless pages that describe the blueprints of the temple. They're all valuable. Even the book of But find your truth in that scripture, not in tradition or other people's interpretations. You need to be reading it for yourself. You need to be discovering it for yourself. David's given us a really, really good story about the church in Laodicea and their sources of hot and cold water being lukewarm by the time they arrive. But David says, go and drink from that well spring of truth. Get to the source yourself. Be guided to the source, apparently, but drink from the source yourself. Now, they're not in this, and I did have some slides on alternative sources of truth. Facebook. News channels. YouTube. And I was going to make an analogy of drinking from the sewer, which I thought would work quite well with Johann Philip in the morning. But you have this tremendous source of truth. Use it. Okay, quiz time again. If it says it in the Bible, is it true? Everyone thinks it's a trick question. If you can back it up with scripture, is it true? Who said that? For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. When Moses beat him to it, I think it was John 9. Um, yeah, that's quoted from Moses in the Psalms. But Satan uses it in Luke 4 and in Matthew 4. Because you see, the scripture is true. Satan quotes Psalms. But what he is trying to persuade Jesus to do is throw himself from the height of the temple. That was plain wrong. You ask any con artist, the most effective lie is one that is a distortion of the truth. Now the 
armour of God is the sword. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the devil tries to wield Jesus' own weapon against us. Have you ever thought that the devil might do the same to you? Well, I know David took Bathsheba. Well, Jesus got angry in the temple. I'm allowed to vent my frustrations and throw things around. But he could be nice to you. You see, Scripture is a powerful tool. But like any tool, you must understand it to be most effective. What's that? You're way ahead of me. What is it used for? Yeah. So, it's good for putting nails in. It's also good for pulling nails out. And it's quite handy to weigh things down and you can knock things into shape. But it has limitations. Because when all you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. And sooner or later, you're going to need a different tool. Now what Mike said, I've heard it referred to as a builder's screwdriver. But it's not very good to put the screws in. You need the right tool for the job. Isolated verses, small portions of the Bible, in their own right, are really powerful things for occasion. But the Bible as a whole, when you embrace all of Scripture and you understand the tools in their place, well, that is like having a whole toolkit. And not only a whole toolkit, but a toolkit in a workshop in which you can use them properly. Anybody who's ever done anything like working in a shed or a factory or a workshop, you know the importance of having all the tools, knowing where all your tools are, which tools to use for which part of the job. And talking of tools, what's this? It is a printing press. It is a replica of Gutenberg's automated printing press. Now, People often think of Gutenberg as being the guy who um, printed lots of Bibles, made scripts up possible, the three theories. But his printing press produced a few hundred Bibles. But it paved the way for the automation. That made the Bibles accessible. What a privilege it is to live in an age and a society where the Bible is accessible to all and we are able to read it. Because a few hundred years ago, a Bible was an expensive thing. A Bible was a thing that only certain people had access to. And your source of scripture was invariably going to be to other people. Maybe through a Bible if you had access to one, and then if you could read. So we live in this age of privilege. 
are more revelations, revolutions rather, today. Anybody from Bible Gateway? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I'll let you in on a secret. I'm rubbish at remembering where things are in the Bible. I am, envious is the wrong word, but I am inspired by those who put verses with the reference to find them in the Bible. I can't do that. I remember what's in the Bible, but quite often I have to rely on the internet and Bible Gateway to help me find it. The Bible on its own, how cool is that? Yeah. Searchable Bible texts. Gosh, can you imagine if all you had was a printed Bible and you were like, oh, wow, I'm hearing a message on this. Different translations and interpretations as well. The audio book. This is my new thing. I love listening to the Bible. And in a way, that's almost kind of come full loop where before printed Bibles were widely available, you go to church and the Bible would be read to you. And it was phenomenal to have the Bible read to you. So I'd encourage you to use these tools that are available to enrich your Bible reading experience. So what's the takeaway from all of this? What is my point? Well, my point is pretty much the same as it was in the last message, which should come as no surprise. But consume this word. Be consumed by it. Live in it and live it out in your life. Don't let this be a familiar book whose stories you've heard so many times before. But turn up. Turn up for the appointment of God of getting the word. Don't overthink it. Don't put God in a box by coming with certain expectations or limitations. But put your time aside and see what God will do and commit to it. The challenge for you in 2023 to commit to your Bible. There is not a single verse in the book that God cannot use to teach you and to guide you. Even those boring bits. So as I said at the beginning, I've taken on David's recommendation of journaling. And I'd like to lift the cover on that and leave with this. Now this has been summarised and slightly redacted. Friday the 12th of January. Lord, I'm tired. I feel like dozens of things are clamouring for my time and attention. The time running out on some of them. Lord, not only do I have all these things to juggle, but I feel ill-equipped to do them. I have no energy, no time, no discipline. Jesus, please give me some. I'm drained and empty today, and I need some good and wise advice. So with anticipation and expectation, I read the next chapter in the Bible. 
2 Chronicles, chapter 3, Solomon is the temple. I'm not going to read all of that, but there is lots of instruction, there is lots of detail. There's not a lot in there in terms of guidance for life. Great if you're building a flat pack temple, but not much use to the guy who has a house to stay at home. What could God reveal to me on a shopping list? Well, the answer came to me through a commentary. And I would encourage you to use commentaries and notes. They are other people's interpretations. They are not in themselves scriptural truth, but they will help to open your eyes to these things. And so Matthew Henry said, There is a more particular account of the building of the temple in 1 Kings 6. It must be in the place David had prepared. Not only that you would purchase is that he had fixed them by divine direction. Full instructions enable us to go about our work with certainty and to proceed therein with comfort. Blessed be God. The scriptures are enough to render the man of God thoroughly filled for every good work. Let us search the scriptures daily, beseeching the Lord to enable us to understand, believe, and obey his word, that our work and our way may be made plain. And that all may be begun, continued, and ended in Christ. Beholding God in Christ, his true temple, more glorious than that of Solomon's, may we become a spiritual house, a habitation of God in the Spirit. In God's word, back to me. Dear and beloved me, like the ground purchased by David, your life has been purchased by me. Build your life as a temple to me. Follow my instructions and build your life temple on the foundation of truth. Look neither to the left nor to the right, but each spoke ahead to the challenge before you. Start it with me and finish it with me. I know that you feel alone in this, but you are not. I am ever present. I am good and I look for you in good place. So just as the Ark of the Covenant held the law, in the most sacred location of the temple at Solomon's house. So we should keep his word as well. Excellent. Thank you very much, Nick. Now, um, 